I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 35th part of my sermonic review of the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that maintaining our gender differences and our gender roles is the most fulfilling way that we can live our lives. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. On this 25th day of July, our lesson for the morning is the 35th part of our sermon series on the biblical design of gender, and the text for the morning is the 22nd chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, verse 5, and in it the Bible says this, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So Lord, we ask you that you would give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now for context this morning, let us go back to a familiar passage of scripture. Genesis 2.18 which says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, in this statement, God makes it clear that he has the best interest of man at heart. God is concerned about the fact that man needs companionship and help. The Genesis passage goes on to say that God gave man the opportunity to peruse the animal kingdom to find a companion. But in the process, the man found that none of the animals were suitable. And after man's unsuccessful search through the animal kingdom, God excised a rib from the man and created a specifically designed companion and helper for him. Understand the design. The woman was created by God for the very definite reason of being the man's helper and companion. Now, it is intuitively obvious to anyone with an analytical mind that women were and are rather not designed to be competition for men. In the initial iteration of women, God makes no mention of better or worse, 
God makes no mention of superior or inferior. God makes no mention of ruler or subject. God in fact says in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God speaks of the essential oneness of the man and the woman. The phrase one flesh is a euphemism for marriage. God also says in Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And once again, God makes no mention of better or worse. God makes no mention of superior or inferior. God makes no mention of ruler or subject. God testifies that both male and female are made in the image of God. And this teaches us that the image of God cannot be captured fully in a single human entity. The essential physical, intellectual, and andrecological makeup of the male requires modification in order to more completely reflect the image of God. Thus, it was not good for man to be alone. So my conclusion is that the image of God is equally expressed in the woman as it is in the man. Both genders have an equal role to play in the reproduction of the essence of God in the earth realm. Thus, I concur with God's assessment that it was not good for the man to be alone. And since God ordained the marital relationship in Genesis 2.24, when he referred to the man being joined to his wife and becoming one flesh with her, I've come to the conclusion that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. However, experientially, a dichotomy, meaning a splitting of the whole into two non-overlapping parts, occurred in the perfect union of man and wife at some point after the creation. God created a perfect environment for the man and the woman to express their essential unity with one another. God gave the man and the woman the assignment to cooperatively tend a fruit garden of a unique nature. There were no insect pests, no fruit flies to harm the fruit or mosquitoes to annoy the man and woman in this garden. There were no poisonous plants, no poison ivy to infect the man and woman in this garden. The soil was perfectly fertile and the water supply was perfect for the growth of the trees as there were no floods or droughts. The fruit of the trees was both abundant and low-hanging so that the man and woman did not have to strain to harvest the fruit. The climate was perfect so that rot was not an issue. In other words, the garden was designed by God in the same way that the man and woman were designed with perfect attributes to meet the requirement of the situation. However, in the perfection of the garden and the ease with which the man and woman were able to tend and keep it, God recognized that he had created a situation in which man would never be able to develop his own will. And the exercise of will is essential for a creature created in the image of God. The Bible records that God told the man and woman to exercise their will, meaning have dominion, 
in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But the exercise of the will of man is meaningless in an environment that is perfectly controlled by the will of God. What will of man can supersede the will of God in an environment that God controls perfectly? Now, my wife and I went to lunch in Grand Rapids yesterday, and she excused herself from the table to prepare herself for our meal. And I looked at the television set on the wall of the restaurant. I watched as CNN related this story that much of Chicago was underwater. They showed the pictures of cars on the expressway with water past their doors and halfway up their windshields. Of course, I immediately thought of my dad. When I called him, he told me that they were fine. There was no water in their basement and that the major problem was on the expressways and under the viaducts in the city in which the sewers were clogged. They had had a great deal of rain, but Dad had properly prepared the sump in the basement to handle the situation in the house. I was glad to hear my dad's report, but recognized that there were no such reports in the garden. There was no rainfall to cause the four rivers that watered the garden to overflow. There was no ineffectiveness in the drainage system that God designed that would negatively impact the dwelling place of the man and the woman. The environment was perfectly controlled by the will of God so that the will of man had no place in the survival equation. There were really no decisions for the man and woman to make because God ran the garden completely. And God found the situation that he created unacceptable. In order for the man and woman to have dominion, it was necessary for them to have some decisions to make. So God gave them one. Genesis 2:16 and 17 records, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, this is God's first commandment to the man requiring a decision. This is the man's first opportunity to truly have dominion over himself. And now there is a condition that could create a negative situation for the man in the garden. Now, before Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, man had access to every tree and plant that bore seed as food. Every plant and tree was nutritious. Thus, it was not necessary for the man to develop tastes and discriminate between one food and another. And my wife and I frequently discuss my lack of favorites and my ability to eat the same food over and over. But my childhood diet was controlled by a woman that was a professional caterer, one who could make anything that she made taste good. So I really didn't develop any favorites and there wasn't any food that I particularly disliked. Anything that mom made was good, and I was able to eat anything that she put before me. But after Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, there is a meal in the garden that is poison. The admonition by God that man can eat of every fruit that has seeds suddenly has an exception. The man has to make a decision as to whether or not to eat this particular fruit 
that is permissible within God's original guidelines, but not permissible with the altered guidelines that God has given. Now, this was not much of a challenge for the man. Being by nature a linear thinker, the man said to himself, I have plenty of food to eat and plenty of choices to vary my diet. To not eat this particular fruit is no big thing. I can just eat anything else. And being the responsible person that God made him to be, the man immediately acquainted his mate with the information that God had given him. I understand that men and women are different and have different reactions to similar stimuli. The endocrine system of the female of the species is designed to nurture and protect children. Children at birth have absolutely no capacity to take care of themselves. Put a baby in a room full of full bottles of formula by himself and he will starve to death because he does not have the capacity to get the formula from the bottle to his mouth. As a matter of fact, God did not create formula. God created a much more personal way for an infant to acquire sustenance. Breastfeeding requires the personal participation of the female, and God has so designed the endocrine system of females with the hormones that bind them subjectively to those with whom they have close relationships. And this characteristic of bonding is that people bonded to one another take things personally. Being by nature an objective thinker, the man said to himself, I have plenty of food to eat and plenty of choices to vary my diet. To not eat this particular fruit is no big thing. I'll just eat something else. But being by nature a relationship-oriented thinker, the woman took the admonition personally and evaluated it with respect to the relationship between herself and God and said to herself, why is God denying me this particular fruit? Did something change in our relationship? Is he denying me this particular fruit because he doesn't love me as much as he did previously? Now, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 tell us, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. And wisdom is nothing more than the knowledge of the objective truth of God. The wise man Solomon was able to listen to two crying women as they gave him two opposing views of the same situation and develop a test to determine which woman was telling the truth and which was lying. Each of the women told Solomon that a particular baby was theirs. The baby and the women were all of the same ethnicity and the baby looked too similar to both women for Solomon to be able to tell to which of the women the baby belonged by sight. Then 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 24 and 25 records, Then King Solomon said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two and get half to one and half to the other. Well, now Solomon's plan was not to kill the baby but to record the reactions of the women. Having the wisdom to understand female bonding, Solomon knew that the woman bonded to the child would plead for his life, while the woman that was not bonded would not be concerned about the child. 
Solomon's command was not very emotionally satisfying, but was objectively wise, and Solomon was able to rightly ascertain which of the women were bonded to the child. Solomon obtained his wisdom from God. Solomon asked God in 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 9, Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So wisdom is an attribute of God, who was able to transfer wisdom to Solomon. But wisdom is not the only attribute of God. God says to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, God did not give Joseph the wisdom to control Egypt, give Moses the power to overthrow Egypt, and then give Joshua the power to overcome the people of the promised land because of any inherent goodness in the people of the nation of Israel, but rather because God chose subjectively to love Israel. God's choice to love Israel was not objective. In the final analysis, Israel did not return the love to God that God gave to Israel. When God came to Israel in the flesh, Israel crucified God. And even though the nation of Israel has rejected God, God has not rejected them and will not do so. God prophesied the end of time to us in Revelation chapter 7 verse 1 through 4, which says, After these things I saw four angels standing near the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And there is no objective reason that God chooses to love Israel except for the fact that he is bonded to them, as Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 and 8 tells us, just as a woman is bonded to those whom she loves. So we see that God has the characteristics of objective wisdom, which is part of the psyche of a man more so than a woman, and God also has the characteristics of emotional bonding, which is the psyche of a woman more than of a man. The truth of the matter is given to us in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, which says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So both male and female are created in the image of God. Male and female are essentially different, but are each part of a whole that mirrors the image of God. And that is why Genesis 2.18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. The masculine is only part of the image of God. 
intellectual objectivity is not sufficient to reflect the image of God. And the feminine is only part of the image of God. Emotional bonding is also not sufficient to reflect the image of God. Neither man nor woman can reflect the totality of the image of God. But I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, this is a faithful saying, if the man desires a position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife. And God ordains that the leader of the New Testament church is to be a once married man. Any man in a church leadership position needs the help of a wife, even as God told the first man in Genesis 2.18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And from Genesis to Revelation, we see both the difference and the interdependence of man and woman. God has divided his nature between the two genders, and his plan is that we of the two genders communicate intellectually, emotionally, and physically to make ourselves into one flesh that reflects the true nature of God. But in God's plan, the masculine and the feminine each have part of the recipe, and as any good cook knows, a prepared dish is not pleasing if one of the essential ingredients is missing. Now, I used to rejoice when Mama was baking a multi-layer cake for one of her customers, and she left the baking powder out of one layer. Now, baking powder is a rising agent used to increase the volume and lighten the texture of baked goods. So when mama left the baking powder out of one layer of a cake, that layer did not rise as did the rest of the layers. And although the layer tasted as delicious as the rest of the cake, it would not look like the rest of the layers and mama wouldn't use it. Gee, mama, that's too bad, I would say. I'm really sorry that the cake didn't come out like you wanted it to. But let me ask you, what are you going to do with that layer that you can't use? And of course, I knew that my brothers and I were about to get an unexpected treat. But although we were able to find that which we considered a silver lining in the fact that mom left an ingredient out of the cake, mama's profit on the job was reduced since she had to use more material to make the cake than that for which she charged the customer. So our immature desires notwithstanding, we were better off if mama put all the ingredients in the cake. Thus our takeaway part concurs with mama's wisdom as it tells us that both masculine and feminine ingredients need to be in the cake of man. God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. We need both parts, the masculine and the feminine, to be complete. And not only do we need the parts, but we need both of the parts to operate in the manner that God designed them. God designed the masculine and the feminine to work together as a team, and on any team, each team member has to do his part. The best players on any athletic team 
will lose to any other team in their league if they decide to play with less than the allotted number of players. Even a tennis player as good as Serena Williams would lose in a mixed doubles competition playing by herself. The team that God has designed to play the game of life consists of two players, a masculine player and a feminine one, and each player is to play their position. The currently popular unisex concept flies in the face of the wisdom of God. Masculine and feminine are both required and not interchangeable in a familial situation. And our text for today is a symbolic representation of a spiritual reality. Deuteronomy 22 and 5 tells us a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now God is serious about the genders maintaining their distinctions and playing their role. God is so serious about the genders maintaining their distinctions and playing their roles that he does not even want women to dress like men. God did not design women to look like men, to think like men, to have the secondary sex characteristics like physical strength of men, or to take on the roles of men, and vice versa. Well, if God makes all this clear to us, why do we seem to have such a problem with unisex in our society? Revelations 12 and 9 tells us, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And Genesis 3, chapter 1 through 5 tells us, Now this serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, being by nature a relationship-oriented thinker, the woman took the admonition to leave the tree alone personally and evaluated it with respect to the relationship between herself and God and said to herself, Why is God denying me this particular fruit? Did something change in our relationship? Is he denying me this particular fruit because he doesn't love me as much as he did previously? And the serpent said, yes, God feels differently about you. He doesn't want you to become like him, and he's lying to you to keep you down. And unfortunately, the woman bought the serpent's lie. It seemed to her to be true, right up until the time that she ate of the fruit. Then her eyes were opened, and she discovered the fact that she had been lied to, not by God, but by the serpent. Rather than the fruit making her more like God, the fruit brought fear into her life for the first time. For the first time, God's perfectly regulated gar garden became a place of intimidation and trepidation. And the moral of the episode is that it is not the devil that loves us, it is God that loves us. 
God's words makes our environment more secure rather than less secure. And anyone that tells us differently is operating with the malevolence of the devil. God gives us his word because he loves us. Maintaining our gender differences and our gender roles is the most fulfilling way that we can live our lives. And when we deviate from that which God has told us to do and do that which the devil has convinced our society to tell us, we simply repeat the pain of the Genesis 3 episode. Now, I know of a woman that was similarly tricked into being a pawn, as was the woman in the garden. She was seduced into adultery by the Jewish religious leaders that were setting Jesus up for a fall. And once Jesus came to town, the religious leaders sprung their trap. They physically dragged her from the bed in which she was committing adultery as she was doing it and publicly humiliated her by bringing her before Jesus. They first deceived the woman into sin, as the serpent deceived the woman in the garden, and then prepared to condemn her to death for falling into the trap that they themselves set for her. But Jesus was not deceived, and pointed out the treachery of their trap in John chapter 8, verse 4 through 7. The scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commands that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking Jesus, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now, Jesus' masculine logic and wisdom was impeccable. How can you objectively condemn someone else for doing the very thing that you yourself are doing? How can you find sinners guilty and execute them if doing so puts you yourself in line for the death penalty? Shouldn't you rather have mercy since you need mercy yourself? Jesus' impeccable logic quieted the crowd and the ones preparing to throw stones put their arms down. And then they put their stones down. And then they left. The scribes and Pharisees left Jesus with the woman. Now Jesus was not an adulterer, and the woman was in fact a sinner. The law justly commanded that she be stoned, and Jesus certainly had the personal purity required to throw a stone at her first. But once the scribes and Pharisees left, Jesus switched from his impeccable masculine logic and wisdom and exercised the emotional bond that he felt for one that was in need of forgiveness, as was the woman. John chapter 8, verse 10 and 11 records, When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus turns the impeccable masculine logic of God into the feminine emotional love of God. Jesus does not justify the woman's sin. He loves her in spite of her sin. 
how can Jesus justly reconcile the masculine logic of God that requires justice with the feminine love of God that requires mercy? John 3:16 and 17 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The woman's sin did not go unpunished. Unpunished. She was not simply let off the hook. But God so loved the woman, as well as all the other sinners in the world, that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to take the penalty of the woman's sin, as well as the sin of all the other sinners in the world, in his body on the cross of Calvary. And the nature of God is where the masculine and feminine come together. The penalty for sin is meted out. Every last sin of mankind is punished. But at the same time, we are saved from the penalty and punishment of our sin because God so loves us that he takes our penalty and our punishment for us. And that's the love of God shown through Jesus Christ. They hung him high, they stretched him wide, he hung his head, for me he died, that's love. And Jesus Christ commands us to emulate his example. He tells us in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But I'm logical and rational. I know the law and I'm ready to enforce it. How can I develop this love that the Lord commands of me? Genesis 2.18 tells me, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 tells me, this is a faithful saying, if the man desires a position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. So to develop properly, I need my wife. God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. So let us cooperate and develop together as husbands and wives. Let us re recognize the contribution that we are to make to one another and with one another. Let us become one flesh with one another, even as the scripture commands us, so that we can play the roles that need to be played on the team that God has given us to mutually develop both his wisdom and his love. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson and we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to understand the essential unity that you wish to have between husband and wife. 
And we ask you, Lord, that you would bind our marriages together with cords of love that cannot be broken. Help us, Lord, to love one another even as you have loved us. And help us, Lord, to display to all men that we are your disciples because of the love that we have for one another. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that we're in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.